I just want to read our text for us this morning and then we'll kind of make some points. And beginning in verse uh, 13 of Matthew chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, that's the, uh, the wise men when they departed, um, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the, its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take your ch the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achilleus was reigning over uh, Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. You can kind of lighten this mic up a little bit, George. It's kind of ringing up here. Um, you know, when when we read that story, we're all probably familiar with the the Christmas story, and we've, we've read it um, over and over and over again. But one thing I see in this, this text this morning is that God, in his infinite wisdom, and, and obviously he knew what was going to take place with Herod and all that, but he stepped in and, and he took Joseph, Mary, and this newborn baby away from what everything was familiar to them. And he transplanted them in Egypt. Um, now, the, Matthew tells us that Jesus spent part of his childhood in Egypt. We don't know how long. Some commentators say it could have been a couple weeks. Some commentators say it could have been two or three years. We just don't know. Uh, but he tells us enough to understand how God was at work in Jesus' life during that time and how he can be at work in our life as well. Now, if you just stop and you kind of reflect on the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Christmas story and Mary and Joseph, and, and they were both righteous individuals and and uh, trusted in the Lord fully, obviously. Um, and, and I look to them as kind of our examples in a way. Because a couple things, just as way as introduction, I see in the life of Mary and Joseph, have we, as we looked at this story, was the first thing that I, I noticed about Mary and Joseph was that they, they lived lives of indiscriminate and immediate obedience to God. It didn't matter what God told them to do. and It didn't matter when God told them to do it. They immediately did what God told them to do. You look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, and it says there, 
I mean, all this stuff was just explained to him. It says, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Now, back then, I mean, you know, it's not like they hopped into Buick and, and drove 120 miles to Egypt, I mean, or whatever the distance was. Um, you know, that was a, a task. That was something that, you know, you had to make preparation for. You couldn't just, back then, just kind of grab your newborn child and your wife and say, hey, let's go to Egypt for a couple of weeks. But immediately, his obedience was immediate. That just amazes me. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Once again, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And so once again, I mean, you see this immediate action of Joseph, even over in verse 21 and 22. It says, then he arose, took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. So it didn't matter whether he was going to Egypt or coming out of Egypt. His, his obedience was always indiscriminate when it came to God and it was always immediate. Verse 22 says, but when he heard that uh, Achilles was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod he was afraid to go there and then once again being warned by God in a dream he turned aside into the region of Galilee once again probably not where he wanted to end up that wasn't his hometown he had a, a, a child a young child at this point his wife I mean you know but he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord Mary in, in Luke in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 38, after what's explained to her, basically what's going to happen, in verse 38 it says, Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Not questioning, not anything. As opposed to somebody like Zacchaeus, who said, Well, Mary did question. She said, How would this be? It's interesting because... That's, that's kind of a different phrase that's used versus what Zacchaeus actually did. Because if you look at the story with Zacchaeus, if you, if you put Mary up against Zacchaeus when he kind of uh, questioned what was able to happen, if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 19, it says, And Zacchaeus said to the angel, How shall I know this? Here's an old guy and his, his old wife, and, and an angel says, You know what? You're going to have a baby. And he's going, Hey, that, this isn't going to happen. What are you talking about? He says, for I'm an old man and my wife is... Notice he didn't say old. <laughs> he used some tact there. He's well advanced in years. We can take some hints from that, gentlemen. Guard your tongue. Be careful how you speak. But it says in verse 9, And the angel answered and said to him, Look at what the angel says. Almost like, you know who you're talking to. I am Gabriel, <laughs> who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring the, you these glad tidings. It's almost like he has to explain himself. But you notice not with Mary. I mean, Mary just said, well, you know, how's this going to happen? I mean, I don't know Joseph. And she wasn't opposing doing it. She just didn't know. So the angel kind of explained it to her. But here, Zacchaeus is, or Zacharias is almost kind of, you know, opposing even doing this. And the angel says, you know what? Since you didn't believe me, <laughs> basically now that I've spoke to you these glad tidings, don't you like it when you get good news? Don't you, don't you just love it when you get good news? I mean, you know, you, you, you think maybe you're, you're going to get laid off from your work and the boss calls you in and you're thinking, oh, here we go. You know, we watched a movie again up there um, called, uh, what was it called? Invincible? 
the football movie guy with the, yeah, I think it's called Invincible. And I love the point where, where uh, the guy gets to the coach's office. He find, they say finally come into the coach's office, and he's, he thinks he's going to be sent home. He's going to be cut off the team, off the Philadelphia Eagles. And he brings his playbook. They didn't tell him to bring his playbook, but he brought his playbook. And he's sitting there talking to the coach across the table, and finally he goes, hey, you know what, thanks for everything. I really appreciate all the work. And he slides the playbook across the table to the coach. I think right there, that was the deciding factor. Here was a guy who was humble, and he was able to you know, say, hey, you know what, I know that I'm just a walk on this team, and I may not make it. And he's willing to give it all up. And then the coach says, hey, you might hold on to that. And he slides it back across the table. And I'm thinking, you know, here's Mary, who is, is just blessed with having this, this child, the king, Jesus Christ. And she just accepts it willingly. And poor Zacharias here, he's, he's not able to speak, almost like a, a curse. He gets this good news. I remember when he, he, he saw in the coach's eyes that he was actually going to keep him on the team. I mean, just incredible news for a walk-on to make an NFL team. It's just amazing. But the angel said, hey, I brought you this good tidings. But you know what now, Zacharias? You're not going to be able to tell anybody. <laughs> You're going to be mute. And not able to speak until the day these things take place. Isn't it hard to have good news and not be able to tell anybody? I remember when, when Crystal told us, you know, that uh, she was pregnant, you know, initially, and, and it was kind of like, but you know, I'm still in the first whatever trimester, whatever you call it. So you know, don't don't share that information with a lot of people because you never know what could happen. I understand that, but that's hard. It's hard to keep that a secret. It's hard not to tell people things like that when it's good news. And here, Zacharias got this good news and he was mute because he didn't believe, as Mary did, the word of the Lord. Ultimately, it all worked out. <laughs> and that's the interesting thing. You think, well, Zacharias, was he a bad guy? No. It says that him and his wife were righteous, just like Mary and Joseph were righteous. See, and that just goes to show that, you know what, in God's eyes, there's a level of righteousness that, that, that really doesn't, doesn't change. We're declared righteous if we're in Christ. That, that level of righteousness maintains itself. Even if we're like Zacharias and we don't believe and you know, we have to go mute, he's, that doesn't make him unrighteous. We're still righteous. Mary and Joseph were righteous. They just had the faith to believe God and do it immediately. Zacharias and, and his wife had to have a little more uh, kind of encouragement. So they lived lives of indiscriminate and immediate obedience. I pray that in 2007 we could kind of emulate that, somehow copy that in our lives. That when God tells us to do something, let's just do it. Let's not wait for, you know, well, that, just, that seems kind of radical, you know. I mean, can you imagine living back then? I mean, all this news has just kind of bombarded Joseph. He's got his wife, and now all of a sudden she's pregnant, he's not the father, and all this stuff. And his life is just marked by obedience. Hey, I'm not understanding this, God, but you know what? If you say you're part of this, okay, I'm along for the ride. And sometimes God takes us to places that maybe we don't want to go. And we would never go on our own. But when God tells us to go, let's have a heart of obedience. The second thing I see there is they deflected any glory from themselves to Christ. You notice when the wise men came to worship the baby, who was really a baby anymore, he's probably two years old, 
But when they came to worship him, they brought gifts. You know, they didn't worship Mary and Joseph. They didn't bow down to Mary and say, Oh, Immaculate One. They didn't do that at all. They worshipped who? They worshipped the King. They worshipped the Messiah. They worshipped Jesus. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph were just like, wow. You know? And, and, and they def def deflected any of the glory that was part of that. I mean, can you imagine having the Son of God born in your own family? I mean, think about it. That's an incredible thought. And yet, it didn't seem to puff them up with pride. It didn't seem that, you know, I mean, if something like that happened today, man, they'd, they'd open up a, you know, it'd be like an amusement park. Pay your tickets to see this and to see that. I mean, just look at the Holy Land, all the different shrines and what they turned that into over there. Just amazing. But Mary and Joseph weren't that way. They deflected any glory that was part of their household to Christ. They, they pushed it over on, on their son. And see, that's a lesson for us, I believe, not only in ministry, but in our Christian lives. When God does works in our hearts, when God takes us from point A to point B, we shouldn't stay at point B and say, hey, look at me. Look at how far I've come. Look at what I've done. Look at how successful I am. Look at how mature I am. We should take that, whatever accolades we get from people, and say, you know what, it's, it's not me. It's, it's the Lord. It's, it's God working in my heart. That's how I'm able to do what I'm able to do. That's how any of us are able to do what we're able to do. It's because God is at work in our hearts. The one thing the enemy would love us to do is to take credit for what God is doing. For the work that God is doing. You know what? You see that so many times in so many churches. It's, it's built around an individual or a personality or a program or whatever. And the, the more ingenious the program, well, the more people and all that. And, hey, praise God, I, I pray every day that our church would, would grow in numbers. But I'm not going to compromise the authority or the standard that God has laid down for the local church just to get people in here. That's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to give glory and honor to Christ. And we do that by maintaining purity in our own lives and in our church and, and, and worshiping Him in spirit and truth and, and holding up a high view of God. God's not just the, the old man upstairs. I mean, he's, he's holy. He created us. He loves us. And here, in their household, resident was the Son of God, very God, living with them, day in and day out. You also notice, the third thing there, just quickly, is that wherever it mentions about Mary and her child, you notice who always comes first. Look at verse 11 of uh, where is it? Matthew 2, excuse me, 2, uh, 2, is it 2.11? Yeah, 2.11. It says, and when they had come into the house, the wise men, they saw the young child with Mary. You always see that phrase. It doesn't say they saw Joseph, Mary, and the child. They always see Christ first. You always see him as depicted first and foremost in that family. And you know what? That kind of shows me that Christ should be first. He should always be first in our lives. Every day. We should, we should wake up every morning and say, God, Christ, be the Lord of my life today. 
Help me yield my wants, my desires, everything that I have planned out. Help me to put it under your umbrella and say, Lord, if it's your will, then I, I pray that these things would take place. But if it's not, then I pray that you would give me the, the, the discernment and the guidance in my life today to make the right decisions so that I'm always putting you first. That's not easy to do, is it? It's not easy to do at all. It's hard. It's difficult. And that's what Mary and Joseph show us. They say that it shows us that they were immediately and indiscriminately obedient to God. It didn't matter the circumstance, anything. They deflected the glory that maybe came into their household as a result of Christ. They didn't take it upon themselves. They, they, they gave it to Christ. They gave it to their child. And also, he was always mentioned first. And I'm sure that he was first in their lives. God was first in their lives. He had to be to, for them to do what they did. To be obedient to that point. And the story we see this morning is this King Herod, this evil man. When the wise men came to Bethlehem, and remember these wise men weren't just, you know, there probably wasn't just three of them. There's probably more than three. That's just tradition because they bought three gifts. We don't know how many there were. There could have been 25. I don't know. But they probably had more people with them to carry all their supplies because they were pretty, usually pretty wealthy people. And they were kind of up in society. They were looked, looked up to. And so when these people came into Bethlehem, it probably caused a ruckus. And when they started saying, hey, where's, the, where's this, this, this child we're looking for? And they started kind of hinting around. This king of the Jews, we're looking this, this to be born. And Herod probably, you know, caught wind of this. And see, that, that just goes to show you back to the, the point with, with Mary and Joseph that they weren't bragging. They didn't have a big sign out in front of their front yard, you know, here lives Jesus, you know. It wasn't that way with them. The wise men, you know, there was no road map to go to their house. They had to search. They had to seek them out, as we saw last week. And when Herod realized that he had been kind of outwitted, he became furious. Because he didn't know specifically which child that they visited. So what did he do? He decided to kill them all. Talk about a ruthless individual. Basically kill all the children in Bethlehem under two years of age. That was his decree. And it actually took place. History bears that out. He didn't care about taking innocent lives at all. He wanted his way and his way only. His only con concern was basically to eliminate a perceived threat to his throne. Jesus wasn't a threat to him. Jesus had a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom, but Herod didn't get it. All he heard was the word king. And little, you know, things went off in his mind and he thought, hey, this guy's going to take over my throne. So I have to eliminate him. That's the kind of guy that Herod was. Human life was cheap to him. He didn't hesitate to kill anybody who stood in his way. Sounds like some modern day leaders today. When he first became king, he killed all the members of the Sanhedrin which was the Supreme Court back then, of the Jews. Killed them all. He later killed 300 officers of his own court. <laughs> he also murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, and three of his own sons. Wouldn't you like to go to you know, lunch with this guy? In fact, the Emperor Augustus once said sarcastically that he was safer, that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Killing helpless children meant nothing to him. He could care less. 
And based on the size of the population of Bethlehem at the time, there was probably anywhere from 15 to 24, perhaps as many as 30 children. Censuses were taken, and basically based on those, 30 children, as, as many as 30 children lost their lives brutally, were just slaughtered in this massacre. And shortly before Herod's soldiers stormed the town of Bethlehem in search of these, these children that they were going to kill, the angel of the Lord, just at the right time, appeared to Joseph and told him to take his family out of Bethlehem and said, you know what, you need to escape to Egypt. The next verse says, So he, Joseph, got up and he took his child and, his, and his, the child's mother and during the night and he left for Egypt and he stayed there until the death of Herod. So it was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. He didn't hesitate because God had a track record in his life. Hey, God said this was going to happen with the baby. Hey, that's exactly what happened. See, it's, it's encouraging when, when you grow in the Lord and, and you see God answering your prayers and you ask Him for wisdom and He actually gives you wisdom. And he, you ask Him for grace and He actually gives you grace. You ask Him for prolonged life and, he, and you're still alive. All those are gifts of God. And that should kind of bolster His track record with us. When we're in a tight spot and we cry out to God as He commands us to do... It, and he answers our prayer. I pray that you somehow keep a mental record. More importantly, write it down. So that when you're in a dry spell in your spiritual walk, you can go back and look. Man, you know what? I remember this. I remember how I was feeling when I just went through this divorce and my life was falling apart. And I didn't know what to do. And yet, God was faithful through the whole thing. And I look at myself today and I'm thinking, man, there's no way I could have gotten through this without the Lord. Maybe you're at a point in your life thinking, you know, I'll never get married. I don't know, you know. There's a guy down at, at John MacArthur's church, the music director. They say that his wife died at childbirth. Because he's not married. And he's like, what, 60 or 70? I mean, never been married. So John MacArthur always says, yeah, I think we think his wife died at, at childbirth. <laughs> you know, single guy all his life. I mean, God grants certain graces to certain individuals. But maybe you're at a point in your life and you're crying out to God, show me the one, and God answers that prayer. Hold on to that. Don't lose sight of that. Maybe you're in high school wondering if you're even going to graduate or where you're going to go to college, and you prayed and you prayed and God directed you. Now you're at a place and you're sitting there and you're going, man, that, that's true. You know what? God has me right at this school and He has me here for a purpose. He's carrying out a plan in my life. Things don't just happen by chance. Joseph didn't wake up one night and say, yeah, you know, let's take a trip to Egypt. Come on, Mary. Jesus, get, pack up things. We're going to Egypt. No. God intervened at the right time, at the perfect time, and took care of it. That's the kind of God we serve. But several times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, it refers to an event in the life of Jesus as being fulfilled by prophecy. It says that, and he fulfilled prophecy. And, and Matthew has a kind of a tendency to do that. And when you look at the original prophecy that Matthew points to in the Old Testament, it sometimes seems to be taken out of context. When you look back and you're going, I don't know, I don't know if this relates to this or not. It doesn't appear at all in the original context to relate to Jesus. How do they pull this out and say, oh, well, here, you know, as it was fulfilled in prophecy? 
For example, this verse in Matthew cites, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that's Hosea 11.1. 1. And it's actually referring to how God delivered the nation of Israel in its context from bondage and slavery in Egypt during the days of Moses. Now, does that mean that Matthew is somehow misusing the Old Testament but trying to get it to say something he wants it to say? No, not at all. See, sometimes you have to understand how prophecy in the Old Testament works and how it worked in the first century Jewish mindset, how they interpreted the Old Testament. Many of the Old Testament prophecies, if you've done any study in prophecy, you understand that some of them have dual meanings. They have dual fulfillments. They have a dual application. One that applies in an Old Testament event, and also one that applies in a New Testament event. One prophecy with two different kind of meanings. It's like... Matthew was saying the Old Testament says that God called his spiritual son, Israel, out of Egypt. And isn't it interesting that God called his only begotten son, Jesus, out of Egypt as well? I mean, you want to think about this in modern day times. Some of you may be familiar with Bob Dylan's song, It's Alright, Ma. In that song, there's a line that says this, Even the President of the United States sometime must stand naked. That's what it says. The song was written in 1965. Lyndon B. Johnson was President. However, in 1973, with all the Watergate scandal and everything, Bob Dylan sang this song at Madison Square Garden, and the crowd went nuts. Why? Because all of a sudden, that song, that one line... Even the President of the United States sometimes must stand naked. In the light of all that went on with President Nixon and, and Watergate, all of a sudden, that had a special meaning. Bob Dylan had nothing, he had no knowledge of Watergate when he wrote that song, but all of a sudden, modern day times, kind of, you can apply it that way. Bob Dylan's not a prophet, he's just a songwriter. But the same illustration, the same way Matthew makes reference to this Old Testament fulfillment of prophecy. He's not attempting to misuse it, misuse it or distort it. He's just saying, hey, there's a dual application here. Yeah, it applied to Israel back in that time as they came out of Egypt, but it also applies to Jesus Christ as he comes out of Egypt. And so Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they lived down in Egypt until the death of Herod. Like I said, we don't know how long that could have been. It could have been a couple weeks, three or four years. We just don't know. But he probably spent some of his formative years down there in a foreign country. Was anybody here ever raised in a foreign country? You were born here in the United States and then you went and lived somewhere else? Probably some of you have been. All right, You have a different experience than we do who maybe were raised and born in the United States and never lived anywhere else. You would have exposure to a whole different culture. There were a number of Jewish colonies in Egypt at this time, and, and Jews frequently found themselves under persecution. They were in a foreign country. And it was common for them to, you know, they would, they would seek refuge in Egypt somewhere. And so this means that Jesus would have grown up in kind of a dual culture kind of thing. In his neighborhood, he probably would have had associations with Jewish people, but in the community at large, he probably would have had some interaction with the Egyptians. Some of the playmates could have been Egyptian children. Who knows? Joseph probably did carpentry work for, for Egyptian customers. They probably shopped in, a, in the Egyptian uh, uh, marketplace. 
And so Jesus gained a perspective on life that wasn't limited if he would have just stayed in Israel. And when King Herod died, we know the story, God appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him to bring his family back to Israel. And since Herod's son, the one that survived all this killing, <laughs> uh, was reigning in Judah, I mean, he's kind of related, Joseph thought, I don't know if that's a good idea. Well, God spoke to him again, and he took his family to Galilee. And he made their home in a little town of Nazareth. Now, I doubt very seriously that Joseph's top ten list for places to live was Nazareth. I know it wasn't. I'm sure he would have preferred to raise his son in his hometown of Bethlehem. That's where he had his citizenship. That's where his family, his friends were close by. But you know what? God had other plans. It wasn't meant to be. And Joseph and his family were forced out of their, call it comfort zone, for a number of years. They lived on the run, so to speak. They journeyed approximately 125 miles from Bethlehem to, to Egypt, where they stayed for a few years. Then they left Egypt and they moved 200 miles north to live in Nazareth. Again, not Joseph's first, first choice. How many times has God taken you and transplanted you somewhere maybe you, you didn't really like? But he had a purpose. He had a plan. And all these events shaped the character of Jesus Christ. They helped him be the, the, the man, God, the God-man, that God wanted him to be. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was growing up. We don't think of him that way. We think of him as just this, you know, guy with a beard and people walking on water, all, all this stuff. No, Jesus was a child. In Luke 2.52, it says that he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. The book of Hebrews says that he learned obedience from what he suffered. It's hard for me to comprehend that Jesus could learn anything. I'm sure he knew everything, but on the human side, he was 100% God, 100% human. <laughs> on the human side, he grew, he learned, he experienced life like we experience life. In his deity as the Son of God, he understood obedience completely. As the incarnate Lord, he humbled himself to learn. That's what he did. He learned obedience for the same reasons he bore temptation, to confirm his humanity and his experience. Philippians 2.8 says, In being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. He did that for you. He did that for me. Christ's obedience was necessary that he could fulfill all the righteousness that God had placed upon him. He was perfectly righteous in every way. He was fully God, fully man. He learned in obedience. He grew in wisdom. He was sinless. He was God in flesh. But he was also a man. He learned how to be a carpenter. Learned how to clean his room. How to read scripture. All those things on the human side he had to learn. We think of the baby Jesus. Well, yeah, just reciting scripture. In the, no. There was a point in time where the baby Jesus couldn't talk. We forget that. God used all these events in the early years of Jesus to prepare him for the work that he called him to do. 
And he led, he, he led Mary and Joseph out of their comfort zone to be uprooted for their, from their home for a period of time because he knew that these events would shape the life of Christ into what God wanted. It would help him grow in wisdom. It would help him learn obedience. It would help him prepare for the work that God had for him on earth to do. And you know what? It's no different for us. No different at all. That's how God works in our lives. He forces us out of our comfort zone. And when He does that, you can be sure that God is preparing you for something. He is. You might not be able to see it immediately. But that's part of the plan. But He can see it. So He can see everything. And He knows where He's leading you. Maybe you take a new job. It doesn't go the way it would. Or maybe you move to a new community and you just don't fit in like you expected. Or the children start school, move away to college, and you don't know what to do with your time. All of a sudden, you've got the empty nest thing going on. Or maybe you find yourself unexpectedly single again due to a death or a divorce. It isn't clear what God has in store for you next. See, there are times in our lives, beloved, when we're forced by God out of our comfort zone. And we find ourselves fleeing in the middle of the night to Egypt in the dark. We don't know what challenges we're going to face the next day. We don't feel prepared for it. But that's exactly where God wants us to be. Closing three things here quickly. God uses these times to teach us three things. First of all, God leads you outside your comfort zone to stretch your boundaries. To stretch your boundaries. I don't know about, you know, if you're like me, but, you know, I'm kind of a homebody. I, I, I just, you know, my comfort zone is very tight around me. In other words, some people, their comfort zone's in the middle of a room at a party. That's, that's where they just find comfort. They just socially interact. That is not me. I am totally the opposite. I mean, in the middle of a room with a bunch of people, I'm like, who do I have to talk to next, you know? It's just, it's just weird. It's just my personality. It's not that I don't like people. I love people. I love to be around people. But there's something in my personality. It's just I don't feel comfortable there. I feel comfortable at home with, with sitting on the couch with a, a blanket and watching TV all by myself. Amen. That's just kind of odd. <laughs> be careful, brother. <laughs> Of course, your wife is, our wives are sitting right next to us on the couch. And, yeah. But you know what? Even that, sometimes different personalities are different. I mean, we went through that marriage thing. We learned that real quick. Different people are different. Some people like that and some people don't. Some people, you know, man, just, you know, oh, God, great to see you, whatever, you know. Other people are like, yeah, here, give me your hand. <laughs> I'll shake it and then I'll go wash my hands. You know, I mean, that's just the way some people are. Doesn't make them wrong, they're just different. Well, sometimes God leads you outside your comfort zone to stretch you. I mean, if it were up to me, I'd just still be renting a room from a lady in Fremont, you know, just living by myself, just, you know, just in my little room. Everything I owned was in that room. And when I got married, and I realized, I gotta move out of this room. I mean, it was traumatic. It really was. My wife, you know, she can attest to that. It was traumatic for her, too, because then all of a sudden in her apartment, all the junk, you know, from my room ended up in her, in her apartment. And that wasn't very fun to work through all that. But we did. We're still together. Praise God. But God leads us out of our comfort zone to stretch us. You know, Jesus grew up in a place where their skin was different. Their language was different. Their customs were different. He and his family were in the minority. 
Jesus saw from an early age that the world isn't this tiny little postage stamp of a place where everyone looks alike and thinks alike and acts alike and talks alike. As he began his ministry, he understood that he had come into the world to bring everyone to God, not just the Jews. He opened the door for all. Those in Egypt helped Jesus see the world from God's perspective. And that's what God wants to do with us. He moves us out of his comfort zone to stretch us. He wants to help us see things differently than maybe you would see them otherwise. He wants us really to see the world through his eyes. That's what he desires. I remember when I was a youth pastor, we used to take groups down to Mexico. We'd go down there and build something or whatever, you know, for a week. And, you know, sometimes I look back on it, it was more those folks down there were just being gracious having us come down. You know, I think they ministered more to us than we did for them. But, you know, just that experience of taking these teenagers into a foreign country where these kids are running in the dirt, they don't have any shoes, they don't have the little, you know, hand games or with cell phones, anything like that. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, was, it was kind of a, a shock in a lot of ways at first. And by the end of the week, Friday came, and we were going to head back and, 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 and go back to the, the Bay Area, wherever we were from. You know, all of a sudden, this group of high schoolers or junior high kids that didn't want to go in the first place, thought it was going to be stupid, they didn't want to leave. They wanted to continue to play in the dirt and the dust with, with these little children who didn't have anything. Why? Because they saw the world through a different perspective. And those kids, a lot of times, would come home changed. Usually they didn't last very long, but they did come home changed. They learned to see the world through new eyes. Now, I remember back in 98 when I started my ministry here at this church. Um, that was not my comfort zone. This wasn't. I was used to working with teenagers and different things. And, and um, you know, I'm thinking, okay, before, you know, if I got to preach maybe once, twice a week or a year... I was blessed, you know, working with a senior pastor. That's basically what his job was. So if he went on vacation, then I would fill in. But I'm thinking, you know, kind of got scared at first because I'm thinking, okay, I got to do this every week. What am I going to do? You know, I mean, you know, and then you begin to realize, well, you know what? God has you here. And yeah, you don't feel comfortable speaking in front of people or whatever. But you know what? God gives you grace to get through it. And you learn to, to minister to people and you see things from different perspectives and you grow in your walk with the Lord as a result of that. God leads you outside your comfort zone because he wants to stretch you. Secondly, God leads you outside your comfort zone so you ex can experience his protection. See, sometimes we're in our little comfort zone and, 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 and everything's okay. Bills are getting paid. Money's coming in. Kids are doing great. Everything's fine. Then all of a sudden you get this call from the doctor and it's not good news. And you're going, whoa, that, this is not in my comfort zone package here, God. This is not part of the plan that I have. Well, what do you have to do? You have to cry out to God. God moves you out of your comfort zone so you can experience His protection. That's what He did with Jesus. That's what He did with Mary and Joseph. He moved them to Egypt out of their comfort zone. They didn't want to go there, but that's where they went. To protect Him from Herod's soldiers. And He even warned them when they came back. He said, hey, don't go there. Go here because this guy's still killing people. His son. God directed Joseph to, to Egypt and then to go to Nazareth to protect his family. It might have been easy, probably more comfortable for Joseph to stay in Bethlehem where his citizenship was and where his family was and all that. But you know what? 
His family wouldn't have been protected and God knew that. He needed to be in Egypt and later in Nazareth. Sometimes God moves us in certain situations out of our comfort zone. We don't understand it at the point in time and maybe the circumstances just seem, you know, we mess things up and so whatever happens, happens or whatever. But you know what? God has a purpose and a plan for everything. When God leads you out of your comfort zone, He may doing, be doing so to protect you or He may be doing so to give you new opportunities of ministry that you never even dreamed of. I remember our, our friend David Villaponda when he moved out to the valley. You know, I couldn't find a church, couldn't find a church. And, you know, I was talking back and forth with him. And, no, I, I don't know. I, he was just uneasy. You know what? God, God is preparing him. I was plugged into a little church there and he gets to preach. And, you know, I mean, who knows what God has for him there? Praise God. We never found that out if he wouldn't have been obedient to God and, and moved and, and, and done what God led them to do in their family. Thirdly, God leads you outside your comfort zone so you can learn to depend on Him. Not only for His protection, but you can learn to depend on Him. When God told Joseph to take his family to Egypt, He also said, stay there until I tell you. See, Joseph knew his time in Egypt would be temporary. Sometimes we go through situations in life and we have to remember that, you know what, this is probably a temporary situation. My daughter and son-in-law just got their orders to move to Florida. So they're going to be moving, I think, in August to Florida. Well, you know, as grandparents, that doesn't make us real happy. That's, you know, it's a lot easier to drive or fly to Whidbey Island, Washington, than it is to Jacksonville, Florida. But you know what? That's what God has for them. And who knows why God has them going there, but that's exactly where God has them going there. And I was talking to Will the other day, and he says, I don't even know how long I'm going to be there. I mean, it's a three-year tour, but if... I'd be, do this LDO program or, or get uh, uh, chief or anything like that. Everything changes. We could be in San Diego in a matter of nine months. Who knows? But God's leading them out of their comfort zone so that they can depend on him just like he did Mary and Joseph, just like he does us every day. The plan for Joseph was to go to Egypt and listen for further directions. Don't you just love that when God does that? He kind of gives you a little piece of the puzzle. He says, okay, here's the plan. <laughs> Go do this. And we're like, oh, okay. And then what? Well, I'll, t I'll let you know. Well, when will you let me know? Well, when it's time. And that's so hard for us in this instant society we lived in. We live in today. Everything is instant, you know. Um, we want everything right now. We want to see the whole picture. And I think if God painted his plan for our life completely, it would blow our minds. So he does it little stroke at a time. One little stroke at a time. Be obedient in this area and I'll give you more revelation. That's what happened with Joseph. From the very beginning, he was righteous. He was just. He listened to God. God revealed information to him. He did what God said. What happened? God once again revealed information to him. He did what... And once again, it's just this pattern. That's the kind of pattern we want to see in our lives. Joseph was in the position in which he had to put all his trust in God. And he had to remain focused on hearing God's voice. So important in life that we realize that, you know what, it's not, okay, I'm a sinner, I come to Christ, and then just kind of do whatever I want. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, you're a sinner, you come to Christ, and then it's like, okay, God, what do you want me to do next? What do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do tomorrow? How do you want me to deal with this person today? How, you know, I mean, different situations arise. We should be totally dependent 
Put all of our trust in God. That's what we're called to do. Remain focused on hearing God's voice. There's something about being out of your comfort zone that makes you trust in God. If you've ever seen the movie Castaway, I just read this illustration, I didn't see the movie. But they said it was a pretty good movie, but anyway. This one guy said it was kind of a totally unrealistic. There was one thing in that movie that was totally unrealistic. It blew his mind. Here's this guy, Tom Hanks. He's on this stranded island. His plane crashes, makes it to this, this island. And he says, the unrealistic part of that movie was this. Even after Tom Hanks survives the plane crash, washes to shore on his uncharted de de desert isle, he never once prays. He never once asks for God's help. He never thanks God for saving his life. He never even shakes his fist at God in anger, saying, why did you allow this to happen? And this writer says, that's completely unrealistic. Something that we've all seen in human nature is when a, whether, whenever a person is in trouble, when they find themselves thrown for a loop, whether they're religious or not, doesn't matter. Inevitably, they cry out to God. They may not be sincere, but they call out to God. Whether or not they're actually turning their lives over to Him, that's a different matter. But you know what? A majority of people who are in a tight situation call on God. The Almighty. Close with this illustration. In 1965, Howard Rutledge was captured by the Vietnamese. And he was held prisoner in a war camp for seven years. And when he was captured, Captain Rutledge was only marginally religious, he writes. But once inside the Hanoi Hilton, the focus of his thoughts were directed to God. He called out to God for help. And God was there for him. During those years in that dreadful prison, he learned to depend on God and he experienced the presence of God in his life in a way far beyond what he had ever imagined possible before his imprisonment. During those times that we're focused, that we're, or that we're forced out of our, our comfort zone, we can have that opportunity to hear that small, faint voice of God clearer than ever before. To experience his presence more powerfully than ever before. We've all been in a situation in our life where we desperately cried out to God. Maybe you got bad medical news, maybe a relationship, maybe your children, whatever. And you just fell to your knees and you cried out to God because you knew that's the only person that could help. Because you were pushed out of your comfort zone. And God gave you the chance to learn to depend on Him, to learn to hear His voice and obey His voice. Sometime in 2007, I guarantee it, you're going to be pushed out of your comfort zone. Something's going to happen. Something. Maybe work-related, family-related, health-related, who knows what. And I just pray that when we're forced out of our comfort zone, we understand that God's doing that to expand our boundaries. And we learn to see through God's perspective, not our own. And when we leave our comfort zone, we also experience God's protection. And we learn to depend on Him in a... In a, in a fuller way. Pray to God to help us to understand when we're pushed outside our comfort zone that He gives us opportunities to shape our character in ways that we would never experience otherwise. To make us, as that song says, what He wants us to be. See, we all got an agenda in life. We all want to succeed in certain areas, whether it's ministry or secular jobs, whatever. We all have this thing. 
See, God is saying, you know what? Put that on hold. Put that under my umbrella. Submit that to me. That may be what God has for you. But you know what? Unless you ask Him, you'll never know. And what a tragedy to spend all your life pursuing something and God's tapping you on the shoulder the whole time saying, hey, dummy, go the other way. That's not what I have for you. I know that's what you want, but that's not what I have for you. I have something totally different. And it's, it's a, a million times better if you would only listen. I pray that in 2007, our hearts would be attuned to God's voice and that we could clearly hear and see Him working in a way as never before. Let's trust Him to do that. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Let's stand together. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And Lord, we do pray that no matter what 2007 has to offer us, Lord, it could be times of incredible blessing or it could be times of tribulation and trial. And I'm sure there's going to be mixed batches of both. But Lord, I pray that our hearts would continue to trust in you as our God. Lord, you say you'd never leave us nor forsake us. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would understand that there's no other way. There's no back door to heaven. There's no, no way to escape the inevitable death. It's going to happen to every one of us eventually, unless the Lord returns. And the key is to be ready for that day. To have your sins cleansed by the Savior. By this, this, this baby Jesus, this boy Jesus who grew and matured and became a man and willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for the sin that each one of us bear. And when you come to trust in him, when you cry out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, cleanse me from my sin. I put my faith, my trust in you. I'm trying, tired of doing it my own way. I, I want to yield my life over to you. I want to start 2007 on the right path, not the wrong path. Go in the right direction, not the wrong direction. I pray that He would call you to be His home, that He would grant you the repentance He promises you in Scripture, that He would give you that intimate relationship with Him. Lord, I also pray for believers here that they would never lose sight of the fact that You're sovereign, that You oversee all the activities in our lives. And yet, we're not puppets. We still need to depend on you each and every day to lead us, to guide us, to show us the way that we should go. I pray that our hearts would be attuned to your will, not our own. We pray this and thank you for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen.